0: Welcome to Plenary Session. I'm Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm an associate professor at the University of California, San Francisco. My interests are medicine, hematology, oncology and health policy. And that's what you're going to get on this podcast. This week, we got a great episode in store for you. We've got an interview, and I think you're going to really like this. But first, a plug. If you like this podcast, check out the new website, www.plenarysessionpodcast.com. We've got show notes, we've got trial summaries, we've got everything you could want on the website. Follow us on Twitter at plenary-session. Write a review for us on the iTunes store. And become a supporter for this podcast on Patreon. Patreon backers get access to the slides for presentations I give on Plenary Session. You also get a few bonus lectures. And with that, let's start the show. I'm back. Planetary session video edition, joined by Aaron Goodman. Thank you. You're the man who lives up to his name. You're a good man, and you're Aaron Goodman. Dr. Yes. Aaron Goodman is a um, hematologist. He's a um, hematologist, oncologist. He's a malignant heme specialist, University of California, San Diego, and. Um, He's been a partner in crime with me and uh, Manny Moyudine, uh the terrific uh, fellow, third-year fellow in University of Kansas, going off to um, Utah for his faculty career. Um, and uh, Aaron, it's a pleasure to see you.
1: Yes, no, it's a pleasure to see you again. You forgot, I, I also do bone marrow transplant too. So
0: well, let's not forget, transplant, the Lord's work, of course. Yes, the Lord's forget work. Forget
1: that, the Lord's work, yes. the
0: Lord's work. The land the land of robust evidence. Um, so, Aaron, I was wondering, maybe we should start by talking about um, what we were just saying. I had a good chuckle about it. Um, the Boston trial. Now, um, you know, the Boston trial, just to refresh the minds of the listener, it's a trial where you could have had Velcade in the first line, and then you were enrolled in the Boston study where you were randomized to, of course, the triplet that no one really wants to give second line, which is or Velcade, and dexamethasone, or... The doublet of Velcade dexamethasone, which no one, absolutely no one, gives second line, started accruing in 2017. Um, it has found, I'm sure, some PFS benefit. Doesn't interest me when the control arm is delinquent therapy. I'm not really interested what you find. You know, I'm sure you're better than I don't know being pushed off your bicycle. I'm sure you're better than that too. Selly Velcade Dex probably better than being pushed off your bicycle. <laughs> Um, but, um, you know, they did their study and we wrote in, we, we, we did a paper on the control arm quality with, with, Ma- led by Monty, of course. Um, and, um, uh, he's going to make myeloma great again. And then we did this letter on the, on the Boston study. Uh, so I wonder, um, you know, what, where, were you seated when you read the reply, um, to this letter?
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yes, that, that I'll never, I always take an opportunity to, to comment on the Boston study, uh, selling X or and cario farm. Uh, but, but yeah, as you said, I mean relapse myeloma, 2017, we're not talking about 2010 here, we're talking That's about right. 2017, the you know, in the Dara era, uh, year past the Dara era, um, where they they took 70% of patients, were already treated, mostly with Cyborg D, some got RVD, and then had a 50% chance of getting Velcadex. Uh, I will say this, and I will say this at every meeting, and I can't wait till they're in person again, not just to see people, but to comment on, on this, that, any author on that I'm, should be embarrassed and mm-hmm. should just say, you know, we shouldn't be doing this anymore. That's all That's all I ask. We, uh, you know, it's just not about drug dosing and figuring out the optimal. This is about giving therapies to our patients that, that we would give in the clinic if that was the control arm. As I tweeted, you know, if you're gonna put someone on a randomized trial, write down what you would give. And if one of those isn't the control arm, uh, either you don't know the therapy well enough or, which means you probably shouldn't be rolling on the study anyways, or the control arm sucks and the randomized trial is asking the wrong question. So we, we wrote a letter to the editor, uh, uh, Mani wrote this, who's, as you said, is making myeloma great again. Uh, yes. <laughs> awesome to work with the most uh, impressive fellow I've seen, you know, ever. Um, and to the Lancet, so, you know, pretty big journal, uh, basically pointing out the, uh, you know, the, this trial, some of the problems, some of the glaring problems. And, and uh, took about oh, it was three months ago I was present they did they did publish it and they didn't edit it anything and the authors I don't Wait, know Wait can I ask you, was,
0: did did yeah. it take us longer or was the PFS longer I I can't yeah, I, I, I mean how I long, which is good. longer here because it took a it took a long time to see this in print
1: It did take a long time mm, to see, see in print and yeah. um you know they did publish it and they didn't ask us to change anything we were strong you know we are very actually upset with this trial and um the authors replied, and I don't know how, I've not been part of an industry-sponsored study where we've had a, to write a reply, so I don't know the mechanism. I'm assuming someone writes it, uh, and then it's approved by all the investigators on the study, just like any sort of abstract or clinical manuscript. What you're referring uh, to is true bro-
0: true scholarship, you mean true scholarship. Yes, someone writes scholarship. it, puts it on your desk, and you just say, that's okay. Yeah, yeah probably a
1: caro yeah. farm writer, although that's me hypothesizing, so I don't know. a fair know. Hypo- I, That's my, That was my hypothesis. Yes, yeah. and so they wrote, and instead of just saying, Listen, I've screwed up many times too, I have. And I've learned from many times now, especially with my wife and honesty is the, just recognize, acknowledge it, just admit it. And most people forget about it in a day. I mean, they do and try not to do it again and, and strive to do better. And I was hoping for something along those lines, but um, you should read the reply for yourselves, but um, it, it was not that. Basically they made arguments that the control arm was fine. Um, they basically, they cited a, a clinical study uh, that used Velke Dex as the control arm, which was a reasonable control arm in 2010 when the study <laughs> they cited uh, was published. Uh, but again, they started accruing in 2017. So I don't, uh, that argument is crap. Yeah, uh, yeah. They, they actually also,
0: called it, they called it, quote, um, trials that ran in parallel. And by in parallel, I showed that there's no overlap at all in the dates they, enra-
1: yeah, totally they different I don't know dates what they mean by, it, but yes. And then they <laughs> go talking. on to say- that these are treatments recommended by the NCCN uh, and other guidelines. Yes. Oh, yes. I sit on the NCCN and I don't always agree with the NCCN. So just because it's in the guidelines, I actually don't take it as rule of law, but let's give them the benefit of the doubt. And if you look at the NCCN guidelines, um, it's, it's, you know, myeloma. I don't know if you ever use the NCCN guidelines for myeloma. They could be a little better. It's literally here's 10,000 choices. Uh, that we all think are okay but really not much guidance on how to sequence in the most appropriate which i do think is hard for a guideline but they don't even have it like up there as record they have it like way down on the bottom and i forget which recommendation but it's like in very special circumstances i.e meaning that daratumam and image don't exist uh, um, or the patient is frail which if you look at the inclusion criteria of the study was not not so so those were their two arguments. Um, it was it was, was under destroyed. the
0: NCCN section of I I guess it's better than nothing section. Yes. you know the like third section down. Yeah, and it, you know like you say the NCCN is a laundry list. Of course, its primary goal is to is to swindle Medicare. I mean, is to give uh, is to is to lead to coverage decisions. Coverage yes. decisions, right? So it has many roles. Um, yeah, that was their argument. Um, it was it was interesting. Uh, There's another one that got me where it was like you know it's like obviously the reason we did selly Velk Dex was that we wanted to see the the pure effect of selly where everything is the same except the selly is the difference so we want to see what the selly is different and i was like well i guess nobody really cared that question you know we had already approved selly in the last line we're moving it up so we want to know if it's better than what we're doing now which is not this delinquent therapy and then i was like but the other thing is you're not actually selly plus the same you've done some differences to Velcade. And they're like, oh yeah, you know, we did those differences in Velcade dosing, but that, and to be honest, we many of us have switched to, you know, weekly sub-Q. Anyway, that's a separate issue. But they're doing these differences. And they're like, well, that's because we, with the giving you the celly, we'll spare you. You can take a little less Velcade. You know, it's a benefit, less Velcade, you know, and you get the better PFS. And then I was like, Little revisionist history. I was like, let me remember. I thought I saw a dosing study. So Monty actually found it. Um, we were talking on the phone, and um, yeah, it's an old study from Blood, and it basically shows um, that uh, the reason they they lower the Velcade dose was they can't give Selinexor with the older Velcade dose. It had way too much toxicity um, because it is a toxic, toxic drug. Um, so you know, it was a disastrous trial, and I don't know when you do something wrong. I guess that's okay. We should just fess up when someone points it out to you and say, we won't do it again. That's what you were saying. Um, but to say that you're wrong for saying I did something wrong, that reminds me of a certain politician I haven't, yeah. I haven't seen in a while, but he, he liked to do that. But the, actually, I was watching CNN. That's all. Uh, first of all, it was an accident. It was an accident scene that was turned on. I normally don't, I don't even have cable, so I don't watch CNN. But um, it was all they were talking about was this person who had revision. History. Anyway, you were saying, um, you were saying about this that um, that you tweeted about it and uh, you tweeted the stock price of, of Cario farm uh, and uh, it, it ain't doing hot. And then some anonymous accounts started getting on your case. Can you well, talk about that?
1: Was, yeah. The anonymous account was basically, I was on another podcast uh, uh, debating. Uh, There's no
0: um, such thing as another podcast. I'm no, sorry. Okay. <laughs> I won't say
1: the name. <laughs> um, uh, debating actually the chief medical officer of carry farm. And, oh yeah. Uh, that was good. I think we can, you know, without discussing much, someone's conflicted in this discussion. It wasn't me Um, (laughs) and and, um, we actually had a good debate and um, we both brought out our sides. And my stance was that the Boston study is not a great study. And I gave my reasons um, and he gave his, but then he it was retweeted the the podcast and he basically in any he seems kind of mean, hurt my feelings, you know, he uh, made fun of my voice. I guess it was too high for his liking. Uh, that I should stay out of this. The drug's approved and was pretty uh d- mean, demeaning. Um, and this was from an anonymous uh, account. So yes, uh, uh, I just retweeted him back. The stock price of Cario Farm uh,
0: which is <laughs> He said, "What uh, he said something like, 'You're not the intellectual giant.' Yes, the I'm not. The, I don't
1: claim to be the intellectual giant. Uh, <laughs> even as as the my chief my wife, medical
0: officer." Of carrier yes. okay. You know.
1: <laughs> my wife was new to Twitter. My wife new to Twitter. I said, "Don't get involved with these guys," and she got pissed off or offended. Excuse me. And uh, Who's this? He, my wife.
0: Oh, I see. He, yeah, she
1: got offended that I was being made fun of. Uh, uh, and then she even replied to him. And then he uh, went after both of us uh, and our whole family. Um, so uh, <laughs> oh I stopped goodness. interacting I'm sorry. with him. So nothing um, to. It's not yep. laughing matter. I'm sorry to no. hear that. I'm yeah.
0: I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's.
1: It wasn't 100. violence. He just said that we, uh, we're all not too intelligent, which is fine. That's his. Oh, no, I see. Okay.
0: Well, I, I guess I would say a few things. Um, you know, uh, I, I'll just tell you a little story. Cause I haven't, I don't think I've ever told this story on the podcast. Um, I think you might find it funny. Um, well, um, you know, I, I, I uh, you know, I, I mean, obviously I'm a big fan of your account and I think I was like drawn to you because of your one, two punch on carry farm. Cause I know it's a, obviously it's a terrible drug. I've been feeling that way for a while. Um, but it's always nice when someone lets you say it, lets you retweet. I was like, yeah, Aaron retweet that, retweet that, retweet that. Um, so, um, you know, when I started on Twitter, um, 2015 ish, I started to, I, I, I threw some punches, you know, I was out there throwing punches. And then, uh, one day, you know, I have like a thousand followers, you know, like not too many. Actually, it was, actually, those were the, actually, those are the great days. Actually, you forget when you have a few f- f- more pop more followers, more problems, Aaron. I like to say more followers, more problems. Because uh, you know, the a double-edged sword. So I had few followers, but I could say what I want, had some good repartee, good dialogue. It was fun. It's fun, uh, you know, those are the good days of Twitter. You could really have some fun. Now you can't have fun. It's all, you know, it's all shaming and quote tweeting and screenshotting. It's a buzzkill, Aaron. It's a buzzkill. But back then you have some fun. Then one day I opened my Twitter account and, the, and what followers went from 1,000 to 2,600 one morning. I was That's like, what did yeah. I do? I was like, I hope I'm not trending. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I hope I'm not trending. And then I found that on stat, that the, 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 the website stat, they had like 10 biotech accounts to follow. And they were added me as one of those accounts to follow. This is a critical voice in oncology. And I was like, okay, wow. You know, I didn't know any better. I was like, I'm flattered. But then something happened to me, Aaron. In the weeks that followed, I was the same person, the same opinions, but the hate was just pouring in. It was anonymous account, anonymous account, anonymous account. I was like, who the fuck are all these anonymous accounts? Who are these people, Aaron? And you know what it turned out to be is, inadvertently, STAT had pushed my account into all the investor groups. They're the ones who are on there, right? And so now my followers were precisely the people I don't want, people who don't know anything about medicine for the most part. There are a few good investors, but most are known little to nothing. People who are trying to make their money back, which I don't want to be followed by. People who don't understand any of the principles of medicine. People who, frankly, I don't, I'm not even sure how much they care about patients. For the most part, there are many, there are a few good ones, but there are a lot of, I don't know. They're just in it for the money. And they're anonymous and they're trolls. And so, you know, then I, then I had to block a bunch of them. Then someone's like, oh, you shouldn't block people. I was like, you know what? You shouldn't do? You shouldn't follow me because you're blocked. Boom. Gotcha. No, I was, I was like, I was like, you know what? I, actually, side note, you know, I see these people crying about being blocked. I was like, that is a sad, that's sad, man. You know, somebody didn't invite you to their party and you're crying that you think, okay, whatever. Anyway, so anyway. So so my, my the, the point of my story is this: Twitter is fun. When you don't have to interact with these investors because these investors they got literally they got a lot of capital in there and you know they're mean-spirited to you because they've invested in this company um not because what you're saying is wrong in fact what you're saying is right um even though you're not an intellectual giant
1: yes no i these i've noticed that the disparaging <laughs> accounts or comments that i've gotten now in the you know nine months i've been active on twitter when i then go out there look at their account or even do a quick google uh, um you can see that they're in, in, of the investing type. I've even gotten emails, um, 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 long emails. I've, I don't know. You've, I'm sure you've gotten them to basically <laughs> asking me to explain uh, a more in depth my my my, my tweets and that it, I'm doing a disservice to patients and that I deserve to be more than just one sided if I'm going to post these things and that it's unethical. And then even one guy asked me to phone call him for consult to discuss why my opinions on sell. I mean, come on, you know,
0: You know, I mean, I think like why I mean, this company is particularly I think um, it's one of the worst offenders because the product is so bad. I think it's a bad product. It's a bad product. And all the only
1: drug. I mean, they need it. to work.
0: That's the thing. Yeah. The fact it's their. you know, it's the companies where they only they're one hit wonders. No wonder they keep putting that on the record player. You know, you only got one song. You got to keep playing your song, even if you got grade five AEs, even if people tell you it's intolerable. You got to play your song. So, uh, you know,
1: yeah, I mean, well, not to again, going back to the Boston, the the two main things that they would say is that uh, it's all, all uh, you know, it's, you can do an oral and it's safer. Well, there was way more toxicity in that SVD arm, including infections. And there's this hearsay that cell and XOR is good for infections because it's had <clears throat> antiviral properties. Uh, Just, so you know, that randomized trial on COVID fails. They did other than the press release. That's all I saw about it.
0: Yeah, um, I, I was like, you know, the last thing somebody with COVID needs is have to is, fight off the cell and XOR. Yeah, yeah I saw I,
1: that. I we opened that study in the United States, but we did. Um, And then then I think 20 to 25% of those patients on the SVD arm needed end plate, you know, weekly. Oh God, of uh, course, yeah, right. yeah. So it's again, you know, uh, it has its place with no other options and you have a good informed consent with the the patients. Um, But uh, what they're trying to do with it is, I'll still say unethical, if you want me to use the drug, show me how it works in the right place. And I'll be the first to say, you're right.
0: I guess I would say I agree with everything you're saying but I mean I, I, I should say what I actually think. Yeah. Okay, what I actually think is I the, the FDA shouldn't have approved the drug. I mean this is fu- this is this is ridiculous. This FDA is a failing FDA and here's why they shouldn't have approved it. When you come to the FDA with this drug, you should not get approvals in myeloma based on uncontrolled data. It's over. Uncontrolled data is not good enough. We have, well, you they can they have the controlled print data, print
1: Dr. Prasad. I mean, that's what they'll say. They'll have Boston now. The, this was their confirmatory oh, okay, study. Okay.
0: Yeah. It was a confirmatory study. Uh, and then yep. the FDA should have halted the study. It's it's an unethical trial, it has nothing to yeah. do with the US. So that's separate. I mean, what I want to see, I want to go back, play back the clock. You got Selenexor. Do a randomized controlled trial of Selenexor versus Dealer's Choice seventh line. I'll give Cytoxin Dex. I'll beat you. I'll beat you with Cytoxin Dex. I'll beat you with oral Melflin. Uh, you know, at, uh, the, the oral Melflin. I'll give it with Dex. I'll beat you. Um, I'll, I'll beat you in OS. I, I promise you. I'll, I'll give you I'll give you um, I'll, I'll find something else. I'll give him again. I'll give him palm for the third time and I'll, I'll beat you. I'll give them decks, even though they've exposed to image, I, I, but I'll beat you. I'll beat you any day of the week. I mean, seventh line, sixth line, fifth line, I think I can beat you. And so then I think the drug shouldn't come to market. I mean, the standard should be you do a trial, your drug against the best thing an investigator can come up with in the country you want drug approval in, which is this country. It's not a different country. It's apparently this country that. That's where you want the approval, and you'll see if you'll win. And I don't think you'll win. I think you will lose. You'll lose heartily. The
1: and argument you'll get is you're denying patients an active drug. <laughs> oh, my, but that's, that's the argument I, I get. And yeah, they'll say, "Hey, right. Storm, it showed activity. There was twenty percent that had some sort of lowering of the M protein for months, and you'll be denying patients that care."
0: Here's what I'd say about that. That's. Yeah. A, I mean, it's a good argument. I'm glad you I'm glad you're. You're playing that argument because I want to. End it forever. Um, you know what do we mean by activity? We've forgotten this business. When, when they came up with activity, the scales, the measures of activity, yeah. it goes back to that dinner party that I talk about in in malignant, which you know maybe a few few people have read, but just just a few people, not many of you. But in malignant, you know in, the, in, in, in this Charles Mortel dinner party, he had people come with calipers and measure marbles through foam rubber. But based on those measurements, they decided that there are some thresholds of shrinking that beyond which we can reliably tell that those marbles are different sizes. That was activity. Activity was developed in an era where there was an infinite number of putative drug compounds and you have to figure out what you should randomize patients to, at least pick something active. Activity was never a synonym for a benefit to a patient, but it's been co-opted, hijacked. It makes people a lot of money. Um, And then I will say to you this, um, the people who email you and they say, Aaron, you're not giving equal air to both sides of the argument. What are the both sides? It's a drug that's not that good that has come to market based on nothing but flawed studies, in my opinion. The other side is 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 exuberant, irrational hype. And I bet these people aren't emailing the many hypesters. The field is full of people who are hyping. They don't say anything critical. Are they emailing all those people and say, you never say anything critical? No, they're just emailing you and saying, you don't say anything that is cheerleading. And I was like, well, the goal is not to be a cheerleader. It's not to be critical to be critical. It's to be accurate. And accurate, this is the worst drug ever. That's what I like to talk about, it. it's just not a good drug. Yeah, and I
1: argue that if you took an someone with a highly refractory myeloma like they did in the storm study, and you just picked, you took a wheel of fortune of every active oncology drug ever, uh including chemotherapies and anything, and you give them to myeloma patients, (laughs) Good, a lot of them are going to lower the M protein for X amount of time. Uh, I'm being serious. No, you're right. Yeah. Just give them Vincristine and Dex. Vincristine it Dex, it'll it'll beat it. Yeah. So, you know, again, maybe that drug truly is better than those. And that's a possibility. But I don't know because I don't they know. never know. Ever show me. And they never will because they, they never
0: will. That. They're not running a single good trial in their portfolio. Uh, I don't see there any. There are
1: drugs trial. like panobinostat and Myeloma that are just not used. And I, I do suspect that the cell and extra will, it already has a limited role and will continue to have a very limited role, if any, uh, in the future, especially with some of the stuff coming up.
0: Yeah, that's right. Um, the approval
1: in um, DLBCL is even worse. But that's oh, God, even worse. Even, even worse. worse.
0: But you know, the DLBCL landscape is they keep, they're approving, you know, I just t- turned my back the other day, two more two more things just jump on the market. Yeah. They keep approving drugs in DLBCL. They forget that we have many things we can give DLBCL. Uh, you know, we don't need these novel $200,000 a year drugs that who knows if they're better than alternatives. Well, the
1: new ADC um, with an L, it's a long name yes. that, I, that they just approved. It's
0: a CD19 tethered yes, to something. right? ADC. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: They are running a confirmatory study versus chemotherapy that is like GEMOX, something that's reasonable. Okay. Um. Um. So that I actually I I think that's a, a fair confirmative study. Uh, where they're giving uh, that drug versus up to six cycles of gemox.
0: It's interesting. I mean, the the problem with large cell and all these approvals. The way I would yeah. conceptualize it is large cell. You get a couple bites at the apple. You can cure people on first go. You can cure people on second go. When I call you in to do the auto, uh, you know, you cure people. You I mean that is a curative treatment. Um. And then you start to get to the people who you have not been able to cure with multiple lines of therapy. Um, it's difficult to cure them. Every so often, you can cure somebody in third line. I mean, you can give them a platinum if they haven't seen platinum or something like that. You can take them to auto again or something and like car that. CAR T cure. You
1: can cure 30 to 40%, yeah. And CAR,
0: and car T. And, and, and the CAR T, maybe there's some durable fraction. We will find out, because now there actually is a randomized trial against auto, I think, in second in, in relapse, right?
1: Yes, but that study, I'm waiting for the fine print. I don't want to be too critical, but they're running that study where they're taking um, early relapse, I think within six months or primary refractory in the randomizing to auto, which in today's treatment landscape is actually fairly cheap, I will remind people, uh, and safe in the right right patients versus uh, CAR-T. So they're trying to move it up a line, which anytime you're trying to move it up a line, you want to compare it to the standard of care, which they are. What I don't know is how many of these patients who the auto fails we'll have relapse to the CAR T in the third line, which is the current standard of care. Does oh, right, right.
0: Of co- yeah, yes. I see your point. Of course, yes. you need, this is an issue of crossover. It should, they should be getting yes. it post protocol in, in that arm. Right, that'll be the question. And whether or not the overall cumulative fraction of cure is higher. Yeah. Um, but you know what, I actually think it's, you know, people like, like make it think like CAR T is a sure winner. It's not a sure winner, because because no. it, it may not win. I don't think, I'm not sure it'll win, even well, on PFS. The,
1: the CIBMTR retrospective, but the best yeah. data we have right now, people were abandoning auto um, yeah. for those stable diseases or early <clears throat> refractories yeah. and just going to a CAR team, yeah. they showed that the, uh, auto transplant for any sort of chemosensitivity is still the way to go uh, yeah. uh, uh, as far as Who's this? This is the guy and from
0: the Medical College of Wisconsin.
1: Who yes, died, right? uh, yes, from the Medical yeah. College of Wisconsin. Yeah. Yes. yeah,
0: it's a good paper, good paper. Um, it is
1: good paper, yeah.
0: But I guess, and then back to the point about the new drugs in DLBCL. So, I mean, I guess, you know, when you progress through multiple lines of therapy and you're giving new drugs that don't have curative potential, I guess, you know, I mean, these kind of piddly response rates, like they don't really interest me. I just want to know, is it better? Do they have better OS than the alternatives? And if so, is it a lot? Um, uh, Are they curing fractions of people? Some of these drugs, I don't know if they are curing anybody. Um, So, I mean, I just don't know what's going on in this DLBCL space. Tell an
1: door in that single arm saddle study, I mean- you had to relapse and then be stable for a hundred days.
0: Oh, that's right. Yes, yeah. the selection bias. Yeah,
1: BCL is a, an aggressive diffuse large. You know, it's not. Uh, in my experience, it's not a you can't wait hundred days to start any therapy. Or if you can, I remember. You have oh, you're my DL-BCL. memory. So, uh, yes, uh, yeah, it was. The there was something was not about for that. Yeah.
0: yeah, yeah. The inclusion criteria required you to have gone without treatment for a very long period of time yes. without having florid progression or depth. So it's yes. really selecting for indolent biology.
1: Yeah, I mean, three months for DLBCL. I mean, that's not one that we like waiting for, especially in the, re- in the upfront setting, we know that people enrolled on clinical trials do better because the time to treatment is longer in the relapse setting. You're already dealing now with more bad apples. I mean, those patients can't wait for the most part.
0: Can I tell you, that's also why I think yeah. that Epoch is like not useful. Here's why all of the studies that support Epoch, you know so you're talking about this one type of classic bias in large cell lymphoma, which is that um, when large cell walks in the door, there's a fraction of people they have to be treated very, very soon within a day. And if you wait a day, you don't got a day. You got to treat them that you got to treat them that hour. Um, you got to treat them maybe 8 hours, you know, 10 hours, 12 hours. You treat them the next morning. Um, the EPOC studies, the uncontrolled studies are often done in centers where there is a referral bias. You know, there are people, those people are getting excluded. And then we do these cross-trial comparisons. We've played this game in large. cell. we played it with Promae Cytobalm, with, uh, with um, M.Bacod, um, you know, and then the Rick Fisher study put those to rest. We played this game. Um, and so, you know, if you really took PMBL patients and you randomized them to our CHOP versus, those are just our EPOC. And in both of them, you did end of treatment pets. And in both of them, you follow the end of treatment pet like you do in EPOC. Don't just blast them with radiation just because you get a little pet positivity, get a little scared. You follow them with pet every three months. That pet will cool off. And I suspect it will cool off in equal numbers and it will be a tie. And if you actually took, um, you know, double hit um, and you give them our chop. And I'm not talking about double expressor. I'm talking about real double hit, translocation, make rearranged. um, I bet bet there's going to be no superiority. And why do I say that? Because, you know, we have the CLGB study, the Nancy Bartlett study. It shows nothing, no difference at all. Um, people say that you lack power to investigate subgroups, but in the history of large cell lymphoma, um, that's never panned out. Um, to my knowledge, there's never been a randomized trial in any subgroup that showed anything is better than our job. Um, we let's, let's talk about these art, this DLBCL subgroups. Um,
1: yeah, so the DLB yeah. subgroups, so there's quite a ways to, uh, s- segregate out DLBCL. And as far as risk, uh, the traditional IPI actually still holds up. Uh, with age performance status, LDH, extranodal mm-hmm. sites. Um, but you know, back in the early 2000s, New England Journal of Medicine, they used gene expression profiling of DNA. And these had to be fresh frozen, uh, fresh frozen tissue where they'd run these microarrays. And they were able to find that there were two groups, the activated B cell uh, type, DLBCL, and the germinal center. Uh, uh, and then there was a few percent that they couldn't classify. Right. And uh, they went back and looked at cohorts that were treated with chemoimmunotherapy and then subsequently with our CHOP and and treatment regimens like that, and the activated B-cell type did worse, Mm -hmm. okay? Uh, Uniformly, when they compared, when they stratified by IPI, it was always the activated B-cell did worse. So this was kind of the start of a maybe genomic Mm -hmm. approach to DLBCL, Right. uh, now already about 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, Because of the uh, need for fresh tissue uh, uh, and the cumbersome Mm -hmm. and the expense of that assay, they developed, IHC algorithms. Mm-hmm. Uh, the most common is the uh, Hans or Hans algorithm. And what they basically do is they stain with CD10. And mm-hmm. if that's positive, then you're GCB like, okay. And you say the word like, cause we can't say for sure. Cause it's not a, a DNA yeah. test. It's not uh, perfect. And if it's They're negative, they then, so CD10 is your first go-to. This is on boards a lot too. Yeah, yeah. CD10 okay. positive your GCB. Yeah. Got it. Uh, and then if it's negative, you then do BCL six. And if it's negative, then your non-germinal center, so negative, negative, non-germinal center. If it's positive, you then do mum one staining. And if that's positive, then you funnel into the non-germinal center light. Okay. Okay. And that seems to match up with the gene expression profiling. Although, if you then do this amongst numerous pathologists, there's lots of disagreement. Uh, um, um, but in general, that group does worse, although understanding that. When you're using ihc you're not capturing all the true there's false positives and false negatives so that is another way to risk stratify um that being said now they've done numerous randomized trials yes. with rchop yeah uh versus you name it um yes a few with revlimid melcade yeah I um, they've added um they did rchop first dose-adjusted epoch some of these studies um just used one subgroup or the other based off either Uh, the Hans algorithm, or um, there's Mm -hmm. this nanostring technology, sorry, there's a 3rd way, nanostring technology that you can use uh, paraffin-embedded tissue, and it's faster, and that's more accurate. And they use these different types, and they were not able to show any benefits uh, um, um, in randomized trials that benefited one group or the other. So that is now one way that we, although we still like to know if they're ABC or germinal center, um, for prognosis, we still can't act upon it, although hopefully we can. So the a, a few years later they started looking at just expression of mick and bcl2 on the surface of the uh, malignant lymphocytes and oh yeah the, hold, hold on uh, let
0: me i, I want to come to that let, let me just make a couple comments on this because yeah. i think it's i mean it's such an interesting topic i mean i think this was the this is a nature paper by ash eliza day is the first author from stanford and then the last i think is Lou uh, stout and i think um you know, this is a comment for Logan, who'll be pulling these show notes. I think we have a paper on uh, precision oncology and DLBCL. Take a look for that. But I mean, I think one of the most interesting things to me is that people were super enthusiastic about this. Enthusiasm ran high and everyone thought that we would find certain drugs work better in GCB and certain work work better in activated B cell um, lymphoma. And the point you're making is an astute point, which is we're 21 years later from this paper. And we haven't found a single thing. And in fact, it's been so depressing. I'll just ask you, I mean, do you even need to know? Like, I mean, you mentioned the point, there's some prognostic implications, but do you even need to know if I gave you a DLBCL patient, um, you know, do you need this information, Aaron?
1: Not up front. Uh, I don't think up front. Someone argue maybe in the relapse setting, knowing more if it's like activated for clinical trials that we're trying to enroll in here. It, it's sometimes important. And then there is some, although not great paper in Nature Medicine that Abrutinib may yes. work better as a single great. agent in not the activated B cell yeah. uh, type or the MyD88. So Not upfront, I don't think, although it is part of our standard uh, um, and the WHO that we should do this, but I definitely don't think we need these nano strings being done. I think the IHC is enough understanding its limitations.
0: And then I think that's right. And then the other thing I want to say is that it's always great to remind people of the you know the three types of um, markers. They're prognostic markers that tell you how you do irrespective of treatment, good bad. Uh, they're predictive markers that if you have this marker, you do better with some treatments than the other. You're alluding to the fact that maybe ABC phenotype in the multiply relapse salvage setting will have some response rate for mybrutinib, but maybe not the GCB type. Okay, but I think that study has like very low power to answer that question. But you know, be that as it may, um, and then the um, the third type is actually surrogacy, which is the hardest and most stringent um, thing of a marker. And so you know, MRD in whatever disease you want, it's predictive. I can probably, it's almost always predictive. It's predictive meaning MRD bad, less MRD good. Um, but is it um, is it uh, uh, sorry, it's prognostic. I should say prognostic. That's prognostic. It tells you MRD bad, MRD good. Um, but is it predictive? Is there anything you can act upon? And you know, there is an approval I think for um, Blinovo in uh, in MRD positive ALL, um, but you know, it's not really been validated with randomized controlled trials. It's based on some flimsy endpoint of converting MRD to from positive or negative, which I think is a self fulfilling prophecy. Uh, okay. And then the third thing is 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 it a surrogate? And in myeloma, it's clearly not a surrogate. Um, people who say it's a surrogate seem to not know what a surrogate means because it certainly hasn't trial level validation. Um, okay. Now come back to the thing about gene expression. Let's pick up there because that's a great point. BCL. 2, BCL 6, MYC, gene expression. What is this double expressor I hear about?
1: Well, yeah. So this uses IHC. So the pathologist will come back and tell you, and we mainly look at BCL 2 and MYC expression. Okay. And different studies have looked at, you know, what is positive and negative as a whole, you know, a few percent, 20, 50, uh, studies have looked at this in the accepted cutoffs are MYC of 40% and BCL 2 of 50%. So if you meet, those criteria of expression on the on the lymph on the malignant cell surface, we will and you have both BCL2 and MIP. We'll call that a double expressor lymphoma. Okay, and double expressor lymphomas in general, across both prospective and retrospective cohorts, do worse treated with RCHOP than those uh, uh, that lack the expression or just have one expression. Does that make sense? Yes. And up until a few years ago, and some people are still are, they would use double expressor. Uh, uh, as a a reason to escalate therapy, uh, mainly to JOST-adjusted EPOC-R. So uh, quite frequently, I was, uh, um, um, when I was being trained and seeing colleagues treating these patients with more intensive therapy than our CHOP, with really, again, we know these patients do worse, but we haven't answered the question, do they do better with more intensive therapy? And then with the CalGB, the Bartlett study, the randomized study that showed no benefits uh, to an entire population. It didn't specifically look at the double expressor, although a lot of them were double expressor. Um, no benefit, I think that's starting to fall off, which leads us to the third group, which is double hit. Although, okay. I don't know if you have any questions on the double expressor.
0: I mean, I guess I would say, again, do you even need to know it? I mean, as far as I can tell, you don't do anything differently based on knowing it.
1: I do not. I don't okay. either. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Double hit. Hit double me. Double hit. Hit me. Um, so double hit means you have an actual, so it's now an aggressive B-cell lymphomas with rearrangement in MYC and BCL2 or BCL6. So that's the pathologic diagnosis we were calling these double hit before the WHO in 2016 uh, uh, made that more, uh, That they gave it that exact name that I just said. And so these are diffuse large B-cell lymphomas with genomic or rearrangements of MYC with some partner, usually the immunoglobulin heavy chain uh, locus, but it could be another partner. And you have a rearrangement of BCL2 with some partner or BCL6, okay? Or it could be all three, triple hit. You have to have MYC. Okay, so BCL2 and BCL6 without MYC isn't in this group. Uh, so you have to have MYC plus one of the others, okay? And if you look at this group, they seem to do the worst uh, with chemoimmunotherapy with you know long-term outcomes of maybe 20 to 40% instead of mm-hmm. the usual 60 to 70% uh, right. across retrospective and some prospective, although these numbers are very small. Uh, they're at less than 5%. I will say that the double hits are enriched in the germinal center, uh, uh, right. Group. Much while the right double right. expressors are enriched in the activated B cell group, but there is some overlap. And into to, to diagnose these, you need fish with these probes. So it's more expensive. You need the three probes. So some centers have argued testing everyone. A lot of centers do that. We test everyone. Some centers recommend maybe just the germinal centers to save some money. Although you will miss uh, a few uh, a, a, in the activated B cell. And some recommend only the expressors, but there are definitely ones that don't express for various reasons due to post-translational modifications that have that, uh, a double hit rearrangement. Okay. And in retrospective studies, only retrospective studies, uh, there seems to be a benefit, uh, um, uh, of remission and maybe even survival with escalated therapy, whether it be hyper cvad or dose adjusted EPOC. Um, and, um, there was one other retrospective study that asked a lot of my colleagues, even maybe even me at some point said, oh, these are bad lymphomas. Let's auto them in CR1. Oh, um, boy. Um, and um, we have a randomized study uh, that showed no benefit to auto CR1 in the, in the uh, uh, total population of DLBCL. Subgroup showed maybe a benefit in the high IPIs, but people were starting to auto these patients in CR1. The largest data set we have, uh, I think it was out of Herrera, City of Hope, was a retrospective look at... Patients in CR1 who got auto, and it actually showed no benefit to auto if you got dose adjusted EPOC up front. But if you got our chop and achieved a CR, then you needed an auto. You can see all the problems with these retrospective groups. Uh, um, but the bottom line is the accepted treatment for these patients is intensified therapy. Yeah. At least in the NCCN, that's preferred. Understanding that we have a randomized study showing intensified therapy in the group as a whole is more toxic uh, without a benefit. Uh, you know, I think if you don't give a dose adjusted EPOC, you're going to be told you're under treating pain. I have a very long conversation with my patients about this. That's all I'll say right now. <laughs>
0: it's very, com- <laughs> well, I, I, yeah, I guess, yeah, I guess I, I think it's a good summary. I guess I would say, I mean, ABC, GCB, I don't need double expressor. I don't need double hit. Double hit is the one place where I think many people will say you should be giving our epoch or something like that. or hyper or something like that. Um, I think, strictly speaking, they don't have a leg to stand on. They don't have prospective randomized data in that population. Um, They will say that it's a rare subgroup. We can't get that. And I will say that, you know, you're giving a lot of people extra toxicity. You should just run that study. And you may be surprised to learn that, um, yes, they do poorly with our CHOP, but they also do poorly with our EPOC. That's entirely possible. And these kind of retrospective comparisons, I mean, I don't even know what to think. I mean, you know, I I know it's like, I mean, you can believe in them. I mean, I I see why someone might believe in them until somebody actually does a few and sees how they turn out. Cause then I think you don't believe in it anymore. I mean, like, I just don't believe in it. I mean, I guess I would say that if somebody told me like, why are they doing this? And the answer was, we know patients don't do terrific with our CHOP. So we're just going to do something different versus a retrospective study showed that people who got this other thing did slightly better than if they got our CHOP. I think those are like similar levels of evidence in terms of like super low quality. Um, and you know, there's all of this confounding by the the, the the confounding by indication, which is like, you know, the person who you're gonna eyeball and you're gonna say, well, even though they're double hit, you know, I I don't even want to try that R Chop. I don't even try that R epoch. I don't want to try hyper C Just let's just go with Chop with this person. Um, that, you know, that might be a person destined to do poorly no matter what happens to them. And so I just don't know what to make of it. I mean, I I I think you're right to say the best we can do right now is to have that long conversation. I think we should also. Quote unquote, what do they call it? They call it normalizing. It's normalizing. So I think we should call it normalizing, not giving our epoch. Like we should normal, like it should be okay. You're not a bad doctor. If you give our chop to double hit lymphoma, no one can say you're bad. No one no, can say you're wrong.
1: It shouldn't be shunned at a, at a, a tumor board or anything. I think it shouldn't be okay. Cause all we know for sure. And this is, is that dose adjusted epoch R causes more febrile neutropenia, yeah. mucositis and neuropathy. Yes. And probably more secondary malignancies down the road, uh, although I don't know that for sure. So uh, uh, I I would even argue, and this is a whole other talk that we shouldn't be using that in uh, HIV-associated DLBCL, although that's uniformly the de facto uh, regimen of choice is dose-adjusted EPOC-R for uh, HIV-associated DLBCL, knowing already, this isn't even double-hit or whatever, you just have to have HIV, knowing already that the randomized trial and the non-HIV is negative, and that the only reason they chose that is uh, their phase two when they compared to historical control, it was yeah. better, which means nothing to me.
0: I mean, to be honest, I'm going to say it. Say it. The uncontrolled lymphoma studies are useless. They, I don't they, even know. What, well, stop doing them. Stop yeah. doing them. Randomize or get out or don't even do the study. I mean, if you're not going to if you're not going to answer a question, then just don't do it. Uh, if they, you're just going to do uncontrolled, uncontrolled,
1: they, uncontrolled. The AIDS Molegacy Consortium, I'm friends in it, but like. They, they just did a randomized trial. They did a dose-adjusted EPOC-R. So these can be done. Yeah, they, they can be dose-adjusted done. Dose-adjusted yeah. EPOC-R versus dose-adjusted EPOC-R versus varinostat. You could have done the good trial. I mean, and it was negative. You could have done, you, you could have done the trial that I wanted we all want, yeah. uh, uh, well, which is to truly know whether we're treating these patients correctly with, with HIV. I can't imagine that study would be positive other than for more toxicity. So I think we I mean, okay if, to give our chop. And I'm not talking about like the Burkitt's lymphomas. I'm talking about the run of the mill, the DLBCL yeah, of uh, in, in HIV. And getting back to the double hits, it's a little bit more complicated. I said that partner may be important. Yeah. Two papers, one recently, uh, both in JCO, they looked at the partner of MIC. Uh, yeah. And it looks like the, you need to have that binding partner be the immunoglobulin heavy chain locus. Yeah, and if yeah, it's right, rearranged right. with something else right. or if it's amplified, right. these were all people that we were throwing into this waste basket of right, double right. hit, didn't have the bad prognosis. And then now there's these double-hit signature studies, one in JCO and blood, that show that there are double-hits that lack the signature and do okay, and there are non-double-hits that have the double-hit signature that do bad. We do not know enough, clearly, and we are working on it, but we are no place to be escalating therapy on these patients as we will be over-treating the majority without knowing we are helping. And then the most recent papers in the New England Journal of Medicine and the other was in Nature Medicine, looking at these genetic subgroups. They're both slightly different, but it looks like there's six genetic subgroups of, of DLBCL. Um, and my hope is funneling those groups into prospective studies and asking good questions. We'll start getting some answers, but it's just too early. We're jumping the gun with escalated treatment uh, uh, for, we're dropping the gun in a precision approach to DLBCL. That's right. In my opinion.
0: You know, I think it's so well put. I mean, if you stand on a mountaintop and look at what yeah. people are doing in large cell lymphoma. I mean, here's how I would put it. I'd say, you know, in some degrees, a diagnosis of large cell lymphoma is a whole lot better than a lot of other diagnoses. You tell a 68-year-old that they have metastatic pancreas cancer or stage four large cell, you'd much, hundred times a day, you know, you'd rather tell, you'd rather have stage four large cell every day. You got a chance, you got a shot at cure the first go around, what, you know, 65, 70%, something like that. You got a shot at cure with salvage. You got a shot at cure potentially with CAR T. What that fraction is depends on the denominator. Depends on, how, uh, okay. But you got a shot. You got three shots of cure. Um, and so, what happens, I think, in the field—just an observation—is um, you know um, you reach a certain ceiling. Like you've sorted out the good drugs. Rituxin was the last big breakthrough. It increased that cure to fraction. Since rituximab in combination with CHOP, there has never been a randomized control trial showing any of these other new drugs increases a cure to fraction. End of story. There isn't. So, what do doctors do? What do researchers do? Well, they could say, well, we're just going to start studying other cancers or we're going to you know, wait until we have a good idea. That's not what they do. We got careers, my friend. People got papers to publish and papers to publish needs. You got to publish the paper. You got to put it right a paper. So what do you do? You start splitting. You take a disease like large cell and you say, you know, I can't prove that therapies are better for everybody. So let's just cut off some pieces. Let's cut off HIV associated. Let's cut off PMBL. Let's cut off um, double hit, double expressor, double this, double that. Double this, double, double let's cut off Gene Expression Pro. Let's let's carve it differently. And then in each of these groups, you can pick them off. Be, why can you pick them off? Because then you can say, I can't randomize. I can't randomize PMBL. It's too few. I can't randomize double hit. It's too few. I can't randomize, you know, that's how they do it. And so then they say they get a little epoch here, a little this there, a little of this there. Um, and at the end of the day, from the broad mountaintop, you, no one has proven that any of, this, any of this discussion, they have tumor boards filled with rhetoric. No one has proven that any patient is better off and they get away with doing it because to start, they have a pretty solid cure rate. And I should know because I actually did a lot, done a lot of large cell lymphoma in my life. I love it. I think it's a fascinating yeah. disease.
1: No, those are great points. And you're right. We get these groups. We're never going to have a randomized trial of one of these six subgroups. Oh, if you, you want, want
0: to be a famous, if you want to be a famous oncology researcher, here's yeah. the ticket. You could try to come up with drugs that work, or find a way to pick off a subgroup in any yeah. disease. You find some subgroup. Oh, how about germline BRCA pancreas yeah. cancer patients? We'll give them olaparib. Yeah, and you know what? Then we'll do that. We'll run like the worst possible study imaginable. We'll call that the Polo trial, and then we'll justify this. We'll take chemo that's working. We'll stop it, and we'll randomize sugar pill or olaparib, and say we win. You know, I mean. So I think it's a. I hate to say it i mean it's it's super cynical but to some degree it exists um you know what's that word work um uh, it's that parkinson's law Uh, work expands to fill the time allotted and so what you have is you have a workforce of large cell lymphoma researchers with no good ideas and so they have carving the disease into things that they can modify based on low quality evidence and i think that's one of the failures of oncology yeah
1: it is and at the very least they could at least do a trial where they say okay. We'll treat one group with our shop. The other group will yeah. do all this fancy testing on, segregate into groups, and do our precision approach. At least as an aggregate, they can show that at least a precision <laughs> approach has some sort of benefit. I mean, you could do that study. There's, of course.
0: I don't know if you followed. You know, I got in so many fights about that over the year. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> you know? I mean, they could, and I've been on the other side of that research, and mm-hmm. I, I've changed my mind with certain things. Yeah. Um, and I'm very open about that. But you could definitely that question. At least we could answer the fundamental frequent question we have on precision oncology, which has never been answered. Yes. Which we can easily answer in any, you know. I'll uh, give, well, lung cancers aside, they've done good randomized studies with it, but like. Well,
0: in in some, in some of the cohorts, I mean, you know, I I don't know all that data. I I have no doubt that ALK drugs are the preferred drug of choice for ALK, but I have a lot of doubt for BRAF. Everyone talks this BRAF game. I have a lot of doubt. And you know what, in, in RET, Cell per There's a paper that Jenny Gill and I did called "Why We Need a Randomized Trial for Cell Per Versus Chemo" because the response rates in PFS are not that far apart. Um, but to your point,
1: those are not chemo's not novel. Then I, uh, yeah, I chemo's mean,
0: not chemo. Yeah, there's no precision chemo. Although it's often you know the mainstay of therapy. Um, and you know one of the things that more people have been cured from chemo than any other drugs of my uh, to my knowledge. Um, but the, the the paper I want to tell Logan about because he can put it in the show notes is this. Um, why CMS should dem- demand a randomized control trial of F1 CDX or foundation medicine, where we basically said a couple years ago, when we decided to pay at least 2 billion to foundation for doing this test on everybody, um, you know, we could have demanded a r- simple randomized trial 2000 people with any cancer foundation, no foundation dealers choice, the same trial I want for selling XR seventh line, Selly, Selly, whatever, you know, Selly or whatever, versus whatever I want to give let me, I'll give them melphalan and I think I'll win. I really do. And you know, um, well, melflufin well they, proves. They agree that. with you.
1: That's why I they're know. not going to run that study.
0: I know they agree. And in fact, yeah. you know, many years ago, they ran a trial, I think called focus carf, kyprolis dex versus carf versus cytoxin dex. You know, this study,
1: I'm actually unaware of that study. Oh, uh,
0: focus randomized controlled trial. It was, I think an EMA um, mandated study, um, kyprolis dex versus cytoxin dex. And I think it was a total tie. They didn't beat cytoxin, you know, it says something, um, it certainly wasn't positive. Listeners will check. Logan will put in the show notes. Um, okay. Now, we're supposed to talk. We only have a few minutes left. We're supposed to talk about these unusual diseases that not a lot of hematologists, oncologists um, uh, know a lot about and relish. Um, but you, for whatever reason, I guess because you are the Papa Heme. You know, I am. It's a self was it a self-given moniker? Or did somebody actually call you Papa? Uh, so
1: uh, three, two and a half months ago, uh, I uh, someone called me it on Twitter, Papa. And I was with my kids. and I had three young girls. and I was like, I like the sound of that. And so then I put it, I didn't change my Twitter handle because I didn't know how to do that. I just put it in parentheses. And then my wife quickly made fun of me. Um, my dad and brother were like, yeah, you should do that. And so uh, I did it and people started liking it. And then I will say I showed up to work one day and someone, one of my colleagues noticed it and it got around to the, nursing staff, and I was heavily made fun of, and then I just owned it, and, and I'm proud, and, and I like it uh, because I'm a father. I have parenting, so that's my biggest job, and uh, hematology, although I'm a bone marrow transplant related malignant heme, um, I've always been, I, maybe I'm in a disagreement with you on you on this and some others, but I think it's super important to know some of these rare esoteric things that, you know, in aggregate, there is a lot of rare esoteric things, and now doing this for the last three years, when I joined this faculty, I basically said, I will see anything. I'll take all the crap no one wants to see. I'll even see patients without a diagnosis. Even if we don't think it's heme-related, they are all welcome to my clinics. It's kind of like the what the hell is going on clinic. Uh, and I get referrals that picked up pretty fast around our university that I would see all these patients and it spread to local people. And even now within California. Um, and then I started seeing a few patients with Castleman's or I'm Chester's, and that's enough to make you an expert because no one has them. Uh. I got on guideline writing committees and, patient referrals and, the other the pace. So now people seek me out for these rare things. And I love it. That's Uh, awesome. Okay. It's exactly what I dreamed of doing. Yeah.
0: One, I, I love that you're called Papa heme, but I didn't think of it that way. I think of it as like, I don't know. I think you offer, um, you know, good bread and butter educational content. um, And that, you know, makes you the Papa heme, you know, teaching people a thing or two. Um, Like, like our old man used to teach us stuff. Um, And then, and then the next thing I'd say is, um, I, I want to clarify the record. I actually am a proponent of seeing these uh, rare syndromes and diseases. Uh, I, you got me backwards uh, because I, I was, I was brought up in a pheochromocytoma clinic, my friend. I, I went, I trained at the NIH, my friend.
1: Don't I know it's not I, important to learn biochem and these rare things. I don't know. Uh,
0: now nah, there we go. <laughs> now, now here we now your rubber meets the road. I'm a proponent of rare diseases, but I am against teaching that stuff. Um, and because I actually think even in rare diseases, it uh, often leads you to erroneous conclusions, but that's a longer topic. Um, um, but I will just make one joke about my field clinic because I, you know, I, I trained at the NIH, and yes, we also rotated other hospitals, like Hospital Center in, in Georgetown and Hopkins, so we did see common things, but at the NIH, it's known for having rare things, and it, rare things, indeed, it has, um, and, uh, you know, this hairy cell leukemia clinic, which is bustling, which is, you no, know, you can't say that about many places, um, but uh, the pheochromosomatomic <laughs> clinic, you know, every once in a while, there'd be someone rotating there, and, you know, you'd always read the report, and was like, well, the patient had hypertension for several years, tried several drugs, it didn't work, and then ultimately, they are diagnosed with pheo, and people were like, I don't know why people don't think of pheo more often, and I was like, I'll tell you why? Because you're sitting here only getting the feos. and if you're out there, it's never FIO. It's never FIO. You need to think of the denominator. That's why they're not thinking of it. Anyway, so um, but but I actually I, I I'm actually was like you um at my old job um I like to see the rarer conditions. I like to think about them. Um, I think the. I could have a longer conversation about why I think the pathophys only takes you so far. But anyway, that's that's not the side point. But let's talk about castlemans. Let's start with castlemans. We might be able to get through this before you have to run. Yeah, I'll try um, to be
1: fast. And- okay. To- so I mean, I don't know. I, yeah, what do I need to
0: know about this cat ca- what, what is this castlemans that people talk about?
1: Yeah, well, castlemans. Is it a yeah. cancer? Is it lympho? Who knows? Well, castlemans, the problem is it's a it's a bad name of a disease. Mm-hmm. Some dude named Castleman in the 50s, took out a lymph node from the Mediastinum uh, and described the pathologic changes of hyaline vascularization onion skinning of the mantle zone uh follicle you know atrophy and he said this has a unique feature and i'm going to call this castleman disease now at the time that was actually unicentric castleman disease the problem is there are other conditions that can have similar similar lymph node morphology that a pathologist will call castleman disease but they're completely different diseases so here's how i think about these diseases because they are treated differently and have different prognoses and um I think in aggregate, you might see a few of these throughout your careers an oncologist. Yeah. So the, the first way we, we classify uh, Castleman's is pathologically, which I will say is not important, but I will tell you about it. The two main types under the microscope are that hyaline vascular type okay. with uh, the onion skinning, the uh, follicle atrophy. And then there's this plasmacytic, you know, variant where there's a lot of plasma cells infiltrating it. And okay. then there's an in-between category. Okay. Classical teaching is the hyaline vasculars with unicentric and the uh, plasmacytics with multicentric, but you can see both in either one. So I would say completely forget about the pathology report, other than the fact that there's findings consistent with Castleman's disease. And it's up to the clinician to funnel okay. them in the right box. Okay. So you got a lymph node back and your pathologist is saying these are Castleman findings. You don't know what the hell it is. You now need to classify it. The first thing you do is, it, is, is it unicentric or multicentric? And a simple cross-sectional imaging will, will answer that question for you. Because
0: multicentric has nodes in multiple places.
1: Yes, that's part okay. of the definition. All right. Let's You're see? right. In okay. unicentric, although there's a new entity, maybe multicentric, unicentric, I won't get into the to the weeds. But see. The, the, the PET scan, if it shows one node uh, and, and the patient has no B symptoms, they feel perfectly fine. Usually there's a 30-year-old female who felt the lymph node that wasn't that big and someone cut it out or they had imaging for some other purpose. Mm-hmm. I just had someone who's being worked up to donate part of his liver to his kid who had CT scanning of his whole body and they of found course. a 15 centimeter asymptomatic mass in his abdomen, oh, they boy. took it out and it was Castleman disease. So this is unicentric Castleman disease, although it looks bad on imaging, no symptoms, one spot. Cut it out, you are done. There is, in my opinion, never a role for chemotherapy or radiation. The minor exception is sometimes you can have these in very tough spots where they cannot resect it. And sometimes like a, an embolization by a skilled interventionist or uh, radiation may be okay. I have some patients in rare spots where I just wash. It's not a cancer if it's truly that.
0: But I mean, just to clarify one thing, I mean, just as a general principle, I mean, um, you know, if somebody has cancer or this condition in a single spot and it is fully excised, um, you know, um, there are a few settings you might do something, but really, um, are there many? I guess maybe that's too broad. Uh, You're
1: you're done. If if this comes back to you and says, this was Kassman and you did your history and you go, this is unicentric and they have no symptoms. You are done. Castleman. N.C. Yeah. But you're what? done. Unicentric guidelines recommend. I disagree with the guidelines. I'm not on the NCCN for this. Of course. They not. recommend uh, annual sPeps, immunofixations and imaging. I disagree with that. Um, I am part of the CDCN guideline committee, which is with Dave Fagenbaum, who's championed this disease. Right. We have guidelines for multicentric. We haven't formalized our unicentric, but if I'm anywhere part of that debate, I advocate for other than... I usually see these patients three to six months later, redo an exam. And then I say, you can see me once a year, but they really need no dedicated follow-up at all. Of course.
0: Okay. Now I got to, I'm just curious. This is a totally tangential thing. Let's say you see somebody and they had a large cell or Hodgkins and you cut out one node and you pet them. There's nothing. You bone marrow them. There's nothing.
1: Gotcha. If it's stage one, R chop cut out, completely resected, um, I will still give probably only three cycles of R-CHOP, no radiation, because we now have data if you're PET negative after three cycles sure. of R-CHOP, the outcomes are amazing. I will clearly have a risk-benefit discussion with the patients. But I think in that scenario, especially if they're fit, three cycles of R-CHOP isn't too bad. And what about Hodgkin's? That. Hodgkin's? I've not, <laughs> I don't know what I would do. <laughs> I would consult an expert who sees more Hodgkin's than me and try mm-hmm. to I would have to review that. I don't know. I'm being honest with you in medicine. You yeah, yeah. don't know. I don't know exactly what I would do off my head. I will say in, in the relapse setting, when you have isolated relapse, I have gotten away with just a little bit of radiation and no further therapy and yeah, long term survival. Me too. So um, me too. I don't know what I would do in that scenario.
0: OK, good. Good man. OK, but let, we'll get back to Castleman's. OK, so that's the unicentric Castleman's. Very interesting. Now walk us through multicentric.
1: A little bit more complicated. Multicentric yeah. is basically, they see the same findings under the lymph node, uh, but it can either be, it's more usually the plasmacytic type, yeah. but it can be hyaline vascular, except they have multiple nodes, okay? Now, MCD is more complicated. There are many flavors of multicentric calcimens. The first type that was really classified was HHV8 associated multicentric calcimens. So right. human herpes virus eight. Yeah. This is the same virus that causes Kaposi sarcoma. Yeah. Uh, and this is usually in the setting of advanced AIDS, okay? Mm. Now, they don't necessarily have to have HIV or AIDS, but I've only seen it in that setting, although there are reports outside the setting. And these typically uh, have a, a plasmacytic or almost plasmablastic-like look under the microscope. And LANA1, which is the staining for HHV8, will be positive. Mm. Then you're done. They have, that is a different disease again, in the setting of uh, uh, HIV usually, and these patients are usually sick with B symptoms and they really look like a lymphoma, although it's not. Uh, A lot of them can have Kaposi sarcoma at the same time. And you treat these patients, this rituximab is the treatment of choice. We don't have any randomized data, but we do now have data of long-term follow-up of patients treated with uh, single agent rituximab or combos uh, that got started on antiretrovirals. And there it's like it, five, 10 years, like I forget the exact percent, but very high when you used to think these patients all died. Right. Now I treat some of these patients with rituximab plus doxyl, And this is more just the art of medicine. I've seen a lot of Kaposi's sarcoma reactivate on rituximab because rituximab is good for HH uh, for Castleman's, but it's bad for uh, uh, Kaposi's sarcoma. Sure. Um, so if they have any a hint of Kaposi's or very high viremic level, I'll sometimes add doxal for the first few cycles. Um, and I'll get them through it and I'll start immunosuppression. A lot of prophylactic medicines get ID on board and that's how I treat those patients.
0: Oh, fascinating. Yes. And do you have a lot of these Castleman patients in your practice?
1: I, mostly the idiopathic, uh, the HHV8, I have a few of them because they come to me, but those, the HIV lymphoma doctors do more of those. Um, but I do have, I probably have 30 patients with Castleman's disease, last I counted, um, which is a lot for this disease. Um, so that's multicentric. The other type of multicentric Castleman's disease looks really for a lot much like the HIV, HHV-8 associated, B symptoms, lymphadenopathy. I mean, you think these patients have a lymphoma. They can present yeah. with anasarca, a renal failure, fluid overload. They get these cherry hemangiomata all over their skin, or organomegaly, yeah. except they do not have HHV-8. So we call these patients idiopathic multicentric Castleman's disease. I.e. we have no idea what the hell is causing this. Now, when you see one of these patients, you really have to rule out other stuff. Yeah, I mean, if they have fluoride, because you can see Castleman's changes in lupus patients, bad mm. autoimmune disease. You can uh, see them coexisting with lymphomas, but if you really can't, if you really can't find any other uh, etiology, uh, then we would call it idiopathic MCD. Again, so they need no other etiology. Two lymph nodes, more mm. than one, and then lymph nodes uh, pathology criteria. And then there's a bunch of minor criteria, elevations of inflammation, um, and these patients. Um, The disease is driven by IL-6. We know that, but we don't know why there's a lot of Uh, IL-6. There's many hypotheses. Maybe there's a small neoplastic clone driving this or some occult infection. These patients, we have a randomized study. Um, It's a phase two randomized study um, where they uh, uh, randomized to rituximab versus supportive care with steroids. So not the best study. I would have preferred they randomized to rituximab, which is what people were doing before Mm. siltuximab, but they did it. So that's the critique of the study. And uh, the hands down the siltuximab beat observation and steroids. I see. Uh, you know, the response rate doesn't seem too impressive like 30, 40%, but they had very strict response criteria. And, right. and just about everyone has symptomatic response and normalization of their labs. Okay. Um, and it, it's not that toxic, it's expensive as hell, um, but um, it, it's just like any other monoclonal. So th- that's how I usually treat those or rituximab. I can't say what's better. There is a little bit better evidence for the siltuximab though. The argument for rituximab is you can treat weekly for four and then stop while the siltuximab is indefinite. Of course. I have stopped patients with siltuximab and my experience is some have had a remission for a little bit, but then they've recurred and I restarted the siltuximab and it's gotten better.
0: I guess because, gosh, and I'm going to say this since I'm the saying that we teach too much biochemistry, but I guess I would say that the rituximab treats the root of the disorder and the siltuximab treats the inflammatory cytokine.
1: I think in some idiopathic MCD is driven, my, we actually submitted a paper recently. Um, I think there is a small clone in some, a neoplastic hypothesis uh, that drives Castleman's where rituximab is the answer. Um, And then there is a whole wastebasket of other causes, but we don't know. Okay. That's just me. Okay. You know, there is That's a subtype. Good. Am I out of time? Can I, uh, can I go with more?
0: Wait, well, well, I think we're, we're both out of time, but finish your thought, finish your thought. And there's then
1: there's way more Castleman's I'm not done.
0: Oh my gosh. Okay. I oh. find one
1: other, I won't go into the weeds, but there's one other type just because it's super important. Yeah, yeah, please. There's poems associated Castleman's oh, basically of course, yes, these yes, patients yes. have a monoclonal demopathy. Yes. Okay. That is their problem. But if you take out a lymph node, they have Castleman's findings.
0: Now remind this, us the poems, what it stands for.
1: Poly, come on, dude, this is, you know, polyneuropathy, yes. organomegaly, yes. endocrinopathy, yes. M protein. Yes. It's almost always an IGA lambda and skin changes, yes. okay? The mandatory criteria are a monoclonal uh, protein and this p- uh, motor sensory peripheral neuropathy, right. which can be quite severe. And then there's a bunch right. of minor criteria like sclerotic lesions, VEGF. But Castleman's findings is one of the minor criteria, okay. uh, uh, not, excuse me, major, not mandatory criteria and you'll take out a lymph node and you'll see Castleman's changes. The mistake is to treat these with a, siltux, a siltuximab or rituximab. These patients, I don't know why they get Castleman's changes in their nodes, but they do. This is a bystander of a primary plasma cell dyscrasia yeah, and need they plasma need cell plasma cell directed therapy. Yeah. They usually have a low burden, a low, you know, they have a perineoplastic phenomenon. They don't have myeloma. So you can a lot of times get away with just Revlimid and DEX. I usually don't use Velcade for the obvious neuropathy. Yes. Um, you know, some of us transplant because it can cause a durable remission, but I just, I would say the test answer and what's known practice is treat these like a plasma cell problem, not like any of those other things. And don't worry about the fact that it says Castleman's. The Different test disease. answer
0: for poems is always to recognize it. You have some like history and they have a, several of these things and you have to know it's poem.
1: Yes, to recognize it. And it can be a tough, it's an esoteric thing. And to recognize, you know, I think a lot of us are trained to look for neuropathies in, in, in myeloma. Those are usually IgM. Yeah. Uh, but when it's a non-IgM and you see a neuropathy, you know, especially if there's sclerotic lesions, you know, yeah. these things should start screaming to you poems. Although you treat them, it's, it's an MGUS that you should not observe because it is a monoclonal yeah. gammopathy of clinical significance that, that uh, F- and F- then, cell problem right. is causing problems.
0: We got to come to that the next week. Cause I want to yes. talk about MGRS monoclonal gammopathy renal significance. My favorite. You know, I
1: love MGCS. I think that they're fascinating. CS. Uh,
0: you go. Yeah. Okay.
1: I mean, if you do a good job with an MGUS consult, although we get a lot of them and are annoyed by them, I mean, you really need to think through them. The, the caveat, the other argument is now, maybe are we over treating more people? I don't know. But uh, I've definitely have seen people ignored for MGUSs that truly have a, a pathology yes. that's being related and get remarkably better on very minimal therapy. You don't have to treat these patients like myeloma.
0: So I guess that's for next time. Yes. Um, okay. This was a whirlwind tour. You talk fast. That's a good
1: Am I too Um, fast? Yeah, that guy might make fun of me again on on Twitter for talking. Oh, this clown, this
0: knucklehead, this person Um, who's watching their life savings go down the drain every time. I know, it's too bad.
1: Um, bad.
0: Well, you know, I feel bad for, I mean, it's one thing to be an investor. It's another thing to go and try to intimidate people to speak. I I mean, come on, grow up. I mean, you want to invest, invest. Then don't go on Twitter and, and start yapping. Invest and keep quiet. You make your investments and see what happens. You want to be an investor and go on Twitter and, and criticize some doctor who points out that some drug, I mean, yeah. come on, what is this? Well, what are, what kind of life super, is that?
1: Well, I think he thinks maybe we're largely responsible for the decline in sales. I, I don't. I, think I know, doctors, but I mean, this is going to
0: sound so bad, but can you imagine a life where you're, you, you're you investing your money in things and then you're going on the internet and you're finding a physician a person who's actually like caring for patients, who's critical of the drug product. And then you're like intimidating that person and saying kind of very, I think, ridiculous. I mean, your voice, I mean, I mean, the stupidest thing It's on on top of that, it's a stupid insult. But I mean, can you imagine what kind of life is that? How do you look yourself? You you think, does a little child say, mommy, when I want to grow up, I want to be an asshole on the internet um, while investing my money in some company that makes a poor quality product. An anonymous asshole more than less.
1: at least- at least be, at least have your name.
0: Oh I mean, yeah. Well, I guess, yeah, I guess, yeah, there's no surprise that this person not have the courage to show their name, but
1: I mean, I guess I'd say, I don't know, am I, I no, I, I mean, we, we got to run, but I mean, I, feel, I mean, you're right, I mean, at what point, like, and there's a lot of these people, which is, this is why Twitter stinks sometimes. I mean, I've seen you get some, you know, it's like, in like, you want to say, I mean, it, this, with this cyber bullying, which is kind of what it is, it does, like, you read these things and like, they are a little discouraging And then like, I don't think twice later, but like.
0: Yeah, no, maybe, but I mean, yeah, I'll, I don't know I'll, tell, I'll tell you why your effect I, I yeah. guess I, I got to rant about this for a second. I guess I got to say it's, it, it relates to two of my core issues in life. One, um, you know, all normal people are always affected by negative things. Uh, so even though I probably have a very high threshold for hearing that I'm stupid, um because I, I do in fact have a high threshold, but of course I'd like everyone else to am affected um, to some degree. Uh, and and you know, begrudgingly, even when in retrospect I am shown to be vindicated and correct, I never get that. <laughs> I always get it, it's just an, you know, okay, well, whatever, that's one thing. But, um, but, but the ax I really wanna grind is this ax of like, I, I guess I gotta say, it's come up like four times in the last few days. Um, I, I don't know what we're teaching people in this society as to like what you should aspire to do with your life, but if what you're doing with your life is investing in companies and going on the internet and being critical of a doctor who's talking about those products, who has no financial conflict of interest with that manufacturer, you're not living a good life. I don't know who should have told you this in your life. You, people need to aspire to doing something of value in this life. And investing in companies and talking shit on the internet is not a value. You have no value. You're wasting your life. Your breaths mean nothing. You need to reconsider your goal in life. Being a doctor has value. It has high value. And when people come into this field, I want to say for all the faults of this field, you're not going to get paid as much as the bankers and your friends from high school or whatever whatever you want to compare yourself to. You're not going to get paid as much. But here's what you will do. If you do a good, damn good job and you try to do good, you might actually help a few people, which is a hell of a lot more than what a lot of people can say. So you should take pride in that and you should try to do a very good job and you should try to be better every year and pull yourself up. And so I guess I don't know what has happened to me. I'm an old man now, but I've been somebody told me the other day that they have a friend who wants to um, make a lot of money and retire at 32 and just travel. And I I just I just lost it. I was just like, you know what? That's not a life worth living. You, you know what? The goal of life. My grandfather's generation, my father's generation—they believed that life was about duty and sacrifice and making the world something better. They fought in wars, they suffered immensely, they did all these things. And now we have a generation where they believe the goal is to make a lot of money in 10 years more than anyone else in any part of this world by doing who knows what online bullshit, and then to retire comfortably and then have a vo- a life of 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 of, uh, of, 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 of sightseeing, sightseeing. That's uh, I was like, that's so meaningless. That's so meaningless. And I pity you. And you will be deeply dissatisfied. Actually, the thing is all the anxiety and depression and all those things that spill over into, you know, why they come and get mad at me for saying you can throw away your mask because they're so anxious about all this ridiculous stuff. I mean, that's a consequence of the fact that your life has no meaning. I mean, if you're sightseeing at 32 because you're retired. Okay. Anyway, this is a total rant, but I feel like you might see some value in this because you are somebody I can tell who prides themselves in doing a damn good job. That's why you're Papa heme. It's not just enough for you to be a heme malignancy doctor. You take pride in it. You feel like you can do it better. You're honest about these drugs because you think we can do a better job. So I thought this might appeal. to No,
1: I 100% agree with you. And like, you know, I I, that's why I think some of these comments are disparaging, especially when they say I don't care for patients. It's like I like to think you know, I'm up late. I go, I feel like I go the extra mile with my notes, spending hours going through charts and like to really, you know, I think more than any, a smart doctor or who knows everything is just a doctor that cares is the most uh, important attribute. I think we all know this in the field. You can see the, I love you, my boss, but like you can see the world's expert in something. And if they're too, you just need a doctor that freaking cares and will look at some lab value or look at whatever and just not ignore, you know, just care because they feel bad about it and need to know the best outcome. That's the most important attribute. And I think I'd like to have so I have some of those features and it is disparaging when you see some random, no one, you know, basically questioning that for the whole world to see on Twitter. Wow, the whole world
0: not sick. So I guess that's another fallacy of the internet is in yes. our minds, it feels as if all the eyes are on yeah. us, but eyes are never on us. But here's what I'll say to that person and, yeah. to, cheer, and to cheer you up. I will say you are a tremendous force of good and you affect many people in a positive way. You've affect Mani, you've affected many, many, probably hundreds of He-Monk fellows and people who aspire to be he fellows. You, your teaching is superb. Um, and I will also admit uh, you have affected me. Um, you know when my morale was low and i saw you come on guns blazing and light up this study for being flawed and problematic i felt a renewed vigor and a renewed gusto and i felt like you're the force of good and i actually remembered that you know sometimes i wonder to myself in this field of oncology there's so many oncologists are there any oncologists who are real on oncologists oncologists the kind of oncologist that you can trust wholeheartedly who will never sell you a trial that some bs trial an oncologist you can trust will get you the best care who never enroll you in a study just because they're enrolling on the study, a real oncologist, an oncologist, oncologist. And, you know, sometimes I look around and I start to wonder, you know, how many of them are left? I start to wonder about patient care. And then I see you come on. And with your brand of, I think, education slash um, topical commentary, I see that uh, all is not lost. There is still this thing, this thing, this um, this profession that we carry. We purport to carry this oath that we are, in fact, physicians who are transcend. I think the mere vagaries of making money in the short run, um, and who actually seek to do something good, which is to change the care over the broad arc to make things better and more uh, right for patients. Uh, and so I see that in you, and I so I think um, this hater. Don't let them get you down. Uh, this hater is nothing. And the people you have inspired and change and motivate is a hundredfold, 200-fold greater. You never get the credit you're due. Um, but in fact, as your name suggests, you are a good man and you're doing good work. Aaron well, Goodman, Well, pleasure you. to I, talk I, to again, you.
1: I, I could say the same few, if not more. I think you've inspired well, That's okay. Myself. Time's up, and so then... you can't
0: say it. But yes. pleasure talking with yes. you, Aaron. I always enjoy this. We'll have you back. We got a lot more rare diseases.
1: So thank you so much. Of more. course. Bye, guys.
0: You've been listening to Season 3 of Plenary Session. Plenary Session is produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. The views expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it and no one else. Plenary Session is not medical advice. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Until next time.